For much of recent human history, people have debated on the right way to change the world. Donate here, petition there, protest this, boycott that. But when the donating and the petitioning and the protesting are said and done, what really creates and solidifies social change? Enter Rutger Bregman, historian, author, and today's guest. Bregman says that while big change doesn't happen overnight, it starts with anger. As Bregman points out in Frederick's latest film, Breaking Social, and in today's discussion, anger is the first sign that things are beginning to change. And more and more people are getting angry. But it's not just about taking to the streets. It takes all kinds to build a revolution. We also need more true philanthropy and what Bregman coins radical nerds, those essential individuals who craft the legislation shaping our future. Today, we're taking a closer look at the history of cultural evolution to better understand the heart of societal transformation and how we can build a movement that makes big change that lasts. This is Pushback Talks. I'm Frederick Gerten, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. And this is Pushback Talks again, and we are now have this kind of uh, three-continental meeting. I mean, it's like we are in this time of the year where all, you know, all the continents meet, and that's kind of cool. You're in Canada, uh, Ottawa, this, this, the famous bunker in... Uh, we named your basement as the bunker during COVID. Yes, I'm back down in the bunker. Yeah, and I'm in the the famous Copan building in Sao Paulo. Incredible. Uh, just waiting to to show my film in uh, here very close by on Sunday. So I'm I'm really happy for that. And in the world famous city of Houghton, <laughs> uh, your favorite place in the world, uh, <laughs> the Netherlands, we have. Yeah. Rutger Bregman. <laughs> the subject of your new film. Yeah, yeah people I, didn't know this, but actually, <laughs> Frederick has made a wonderful film about urban design, about one of the most beautiful places in the world called Houten. It's a suburb of Utrecht in the Netherlands, and he was just blown away by it. it just extraordinary beauty. Yeah, Frederick, you were really... You, you immediately <laughs> fell in love, didn't you? <laughs> the thing is that, <clears throat> that Houten, Rutger's hometown is famous for its uh, its bicycle planning mm. it's it's world famous for its planning and it's it is actually very cool um but it's just then, a tiny little bit ugly though <laughs> no but leilani leilani you know you have very smart city planners who lay out the city plan and then they hand it over to the developers oh, yeah. and then the developers scale down the ambitions you know or to scale up to you know the scales and so it's like, it's cool in principle, but then you, when you watch the details, it's like, oh shit, mm. why didn't you do this better? Which is a bit sad. And that's uh, the conflict between architecture and developers. Developers want to save money and then they, they skip corners in a way that mm. it... That, so, sorry, Rutger, I love you and your town. But you still managed to capture the beauty of Houghton. Yeah. And in difficult circumstances, <laughs> because this was in the middle, uh, this was in the early days of COVID, so there was almost no one on the street. It felt like a ghost city. And uh, yeah, but I just, I just thought it was really hilarious when first you see Houghton and then, <laughs> then the image shifts to beautiful Malta. <laughs> it's like my wife and I burst out laughing when we saw that. 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. it's not easy. So Rutger, welcome to to our podcast. And I mean, for me, this is a very special moment because Leilani were in like the main character of Push, uh, and we also happen to travel a lot together, present the film, and talk to audiences. And we also had a big screening at the Royal Theatre Carré in Amsterdam mm-hmm. four years ago. And you and I recently had the same experience with a sold-out Carré, 1,400 people in the audience. It was kind of a cool experience, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pretty amazing. It, I mean, Carré is the most prestigious place <laughs> in Amsterdam or in the Netherlands to show your film. So, uh, yeah, that was pretty cool. Actually, I'd never, you know, been on stage of Carré. So thank you, Frederick. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> And of course, I never had either. It was yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember yeah. it very well. What, I, what did you did you get a lot of reaction from friends and people about the film? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah. It, it it's really resonating here in the Netherlands, and obviously, it hasn't even come out yet. I think in in February or in March that it will be in cinemas. But there's already a lot of buzz around the movie because basically, I mean, this is a global story, isn't it? It's 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 about the same patterns of extraction of like exploitation. And of people rising up, of people resisting. And it's the same pattern that we see in so many places. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's it's a cool thing. Leilani, what did what did you, did you take out from from breaking social? You you came to the pre- premiere in Copenhagen. It the the point on it resonating, I think, is also related to the fact a lot of people feel stuff inside like they're feeling wait a second I'm working my ass off and I'm not making any money and I'm living in a shit place and my kids have no future but they don't have an external articulation of that sometimes Mm -hmm. and the film helps with that right so you're watching it going that's me I'm that teacher who is struggling and, you know, doing one of the most important jobs in the world, right? Educating children. And I don't have health care, right? I, I think it helps externalize what a lot of people are suffering and feeling inside. And a lot of people are embarrassed and humiliated by their circumstances, right? As if it's their, their fault that they've ended up where they've ended up and the film just blows open. No, this is a huge system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what I also really like is that the film allows you to be angry. I mean, there's sometimes this tendency among progressives to say that you always have to be happy and optimistic and always look on the bright (laughs) side of life, right? Um, Monty Python. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I mean, there's, in some respects, I'm a pretty optimistic guy, but I'm also quite angry, actually. I mean, actually really fucking angry (laughs) in some respects, especially when it comes to the things that your film is about, you know, just the the massive amounts of exploitation or these these global firms that help the rich evade or dodge their taxes. Just the utter corruption and criminality that we see at the top of society. I'm really, really angry about that. And, and I think what's important to remember here is that anger is really different from cynicism. Mm. Cynicism makes people lazy. You know, when you're a cynic, you say, oh, it doesn't really matter. You know, what's the point anyway? And, and people turn inwards. But when people are angry, they basically say, I expect more of you. I am disappointed in you and you should do better. So anger, I think, is a very productive emotion mm. um, if, if it's channeled in, in the right way. And I think you beautifully show that in the film, 
that it's a lot of activists who are really angry, but then come together, build a movement, and make change. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's for me, it, the film is about two things. It's about the beauty of Houghton, obviously, <laughs> uh, but it's also about the power of, of anger and the productiveness of anger. The beauty of Houghton. I mean, <laughs> Leilani, you talk a lot about your... your <laughs> coming from a nowhere place <laughs> and that's the capital that's the capital of canada <laughs> yes that's right i'm a i'm in a nowhere town that's going nowhere <laughs> let me tell you going nowhere you want to talk ugly come visit ottawa sad sad the developers have their ways but i like i like what rutger just said about anger and legitimizing anger and the difference between anger and cynicism i think that's so bang on and i also think a lot of people feel um, oh, it's just the system doing what the system does. And the film portrays a, 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 the legitimacy of actually challenging the system, that the system doesn't have to just do what this, that people are making the system. People are mm -hmm. producing the system for their own ends. And, and I like that idea of anger being constructive when it's used constructively, of course, as you said. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it's so true. And for as a woman activist and advocate, I can tell you there's a lot of pushback against, um, w you know, women who are angry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're, as a woman, you're really not supposed to be angry. And mm -hmm. I'm an Arab Canadian woman. It's even worse because there's such a stereotype around Arab aggression and stuff like that. And so mm -hmm. I do think the, f like the women are so prominent in the film, right there. And they are the ones leading the charge. So for me, it felt really great to watch that and go, yeah, like I'm, I'm just mm -hmm. one of them. And I'm just trying to make the world a better place. And my anger does motivate me. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's sometimes a source of hope as well. Because sometimes when people are really angry about something, they may, they may forget that the fact that they are angry and that they're not alone in their anger is already a sign of progress. So if I'll just give one example, take something like tax evasion and tax avoidance. 10, 20 years ago, there was hardly any talk about this. So there were hardly any NGOs working on it. There were very few politicians saying anything about it. There was very little activist energy uh, pushing against this practice. And there was an enormous amount of, of tax avoidance and tax evasion. Um, there still is, but we have made progress. And yeah, a lot of people are really angry about it. You know, though We've seen books like Thomas Piketty's book on capital, you know, becoming a massive bestseller. Uh, we finally have the EU agreeing on a minimum corporate tax, which is by far not enough, but it is pretty historic. So um, I think that's really important to keep in mind is that the moment when people get angry, that's the moment when they're waking up and that's the moment when we're already making progress. It's actually in silence where the biggest injustices happen. And that's when we, when we need to start raising our voices, obviously. Yeah, and I mean, Rutger, you you became world famous viral at Davos mm. when you told the the, the philanthropist, the, the big Davos guys, that they should just pay taxes, taxes, taxes. And <laughs> why do you think that became so viral? Well, because it was something that a lot of people were already thinking, uh, but they weren't invited to Davos. So <laughs> I guess it was just a guilty pleasure of seeing someone uh, sticking it up to the rich, right? And, and just saying what everyone 
already was thinking. It's like, stop blah blahing about your philanthropy, about all your do-gooderism, uh, and, and pay your taxes first. So I've always said I, I'm not against philanthropy, right? There, there are beautiful examples of effective historical f- philanthropy. If you look at the American abolitionists, they were financed by Garrett Smith, which, who was the richest man in New York at the time. He was a member of the Secret Six, you know. Uh, it, was, it was really controversial and even dangerous to finance the abolitionists at the time. Uh, same is true for the suffragettes. You know, there were some wealthy people behind that as well, say George Francis Strain, who financed uh, the Revolution, uh, the famous magazine by um, uh, Susan B. Anthony. Um, so the civil rights movement, same story again. There's, there was a fund called the Garland Fund. Uh, it's a really hilarious story of a guy called Charles Garland who inherited a million dollars and he tried to say no. So he said, like, like no, I don't want the money. Like, that, that's not, I, I think that's immoral to, to be so rich. But then his lawyer said, yeah, sorry, that's just not an option. You have to accept it. <laughs> and so he was forced to be rich. Uh, but then he, he put, gave it all away and put it in a foundation called the Garland Fund. Uh, and he had one condition. He said, everything has to be given away to the most unpopular people in society. So preferably to people who are of color and who are in prisons. And actually with money of the Garland Fund, the civil rights movement was able to hire its first full-time attorney in the 1930s. And that laid the basis for Brown v. Board of Education, you know, their big legal victory in, in the 1950s. So long story, I'm not against philanthropy. It's just pay your taxes first and then be ambitious in your giving. Uh, Rutger, it sounds like you made some research. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, this is just something that I'm, ex- that I'm excited about. Um, it's, it's, it's something that progressives and leftists sometimes forget, is that actually there's, there's always been a very small group of thoughtful, committed, morally ambitious philanthropists who made a huge difference in our movement. So, yeah, that, that is important to keep in mind. The, the vast majority of philanthropists and philanthropy is, is BS, of course. I mean, that's, it's, it, most of it is about putting your name on, the, on a big building of your university or something or a hospital because you're so insecure about your ego. That's what most philanthropy is like, and that's, that's just BS. Yeah, we have Steve, Stephen Schwartzman of Blackstone. He puts his name on university buildings from Beijing to yeah. London to the US and everywhere. Yeah. Can and you imagine? Yeah, can yeah. you imagine how insecure you must be? How, <laughs> yeah, just how thin your personality is in that respect. I've, I've always been, been amazed by that. It's, sometimes people think, oh, these rich people, they must be really smart they must know something that i don't but <laughs> i've met quite a few rich people in the last couple of years and <laughs> i'm very often really underwhelmed like yeah. oh wow you're you're so unsophisticated uh, yeah. this is it you, very often they're they're good at one particular thing um but very limited in other respects which is kind of scary uh, it, it, it is scary i find it amazing the way our society works that if you have a ridiculous and actually obscene amount of money, mm. your opinion and advice on anything, any world matter is somehow relevant. I, I have, I've never understood this. Like Elon Musk taking up the airwaves. Why? Like what, what, what is, why should he have an opinion on world affairs? Mm-hmm. He makes electric cars. Like it just, I find that, well, and it's often quite gendered. It's 
it, it just it's such a bizarre thing, as you say. What makes any of these people experts? They might be expert in something, mm-hmm. but world affairs probably not. But but talking about Ruth, you talked about that. Um, Tax avoidance is now in everybody's mind that people think that, okay, rich people should also pay taxes. But this is another thing that I think that these heroes, the Elon Musk, the Jeff Bezos, and, you know, all these guys, they were for some time like heroes of our of our time. Yeah. But they think they, it's, they're falling down yeah. in respect. Yeah, yeah. People don't really respect them anymore. Yeah. Isn't that kind of interesting? Yeah, yeah. Well, it depends. So Jeff Bezos is, I think... Most people, you know, don't really like him. Elon Musk is a bit of a mixed bag. I think that we have to admit that, you know, he basically caused a revolution in in the world of automobiles. And yeah, that that is that is paradoxical. And I think it needs to be acknowledged that, you know, just governments were not investing enough in, in electric cars and other businesses were do, weren't doing it either. So I've always thought that that was pretty impressive. Now, I, I completely agree that, you know, it's gone to his head a, just a tiny little bit. <laughs> and mm-hmm. now he's giving his opinions about all sorts of silly things. And he's buying a media outlet and, and promotes himself on the front page every day. Of course, of course. <laughs> yeah. But I think the it's not really about individuals here. The thing to keep in mind is that, as, as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez once said, is that billionaires are a policy failure. Billionaires just shouldn't exist. I think there's no there's no legitimacy of, of being a billionaire. There's no moral reasoning where you can say, oh, that makes sense. Let's give someone a billion dollars. It's just no individual is ever that important. We all know how these people get rich. It's through extraction of building up monopolies. It's it's of, 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 of taking other people's earnings and labor and and that's that's basically how it's been working since the beginning of time or since a long time at least so that that for me is is the essential fact here every billionaire is a policy failure it's not inevitable and we can regulate them out of, out of existence but if we want to do that then we first need to build a movement a lot of activist pressure and after that we need a lot of what i like to call radical nerds so it's not enough to have the people in the streets we also need the people uh, who are lobbying for good, who are in the courthouses, who know everything about, you know, the tiny little details in tax policy and tax leg- legislation. That's incredibly important as well. So, yeah, there are many, many different roles to play in every movement. But one of the goals should be to legislate billionaires out of existence, because I think they just shouldn't exist. I'm not going to disagree. <laughs> one of the things that I try to get people's heads around is the idea that that by being a billionaire, by being a private equity firm, they are producing homelessness, producing poverty, producing that that their wealth produces these inequalities. And that therefore, it's not just that we have a hate on for billionaires. It's it's as AOC said, or as you said, Rutger, it's a policy failure, but it's also a policy that has to be dismantled. It was created and can be dismantled. And Mm -hmm. I I don't tend to talk about wiping Blackstone, for example, one of my nemeses, off the face of the earth, but I do talk about the need to understand what they are producing through their extraction. Mm -hmm. And I also just want to say, just to go back for a moment to your moment, your viral moment at Davos, what for me as someone, I saw the clip at the time mm. and 
what it was, what it wasn't just that you were saying what other people were saying. It was the way you said it, to be honest, because you you said it in a way that was you couldn't argue against it. It was so reasonable and so obvious in a way, but mm. you just said it. And I I think that's part of the game here is naming in a very plain, straightforward way. You have a real art with that, Rutger, and I, I envy that. I'm not sure that I do, but, you know, just a plain way of saying, like, it doesn't have to be this way. And Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, Sometimes people think, oh, this is this sounds very utopian or socialist or idealistic or blah, blah, blah. Not at all, actually. Yeah. Uh, you just go back a little bit in history and you find out that in the 1950s and the 60s, during the so-called golden age of capitalism, we had marginal tax rates that went up all the way to 90%. We exactly. had a pretty brutal estate tax and a pretty brutal inheritance tax, which makes sense, right? I think yeah. we should have pretty low taxes on labor, you know, let people keep what they earn by actually contributing something to society. And we should have very high ca- taxes on, on capital and especially on things like inheritances and, and rent seeking and all that. Today, it's the other way around. Yeah. Right. So the more you contribute, the more you pay in taxes, uh, the less you earn. That's that's the the upside down economy we live in. The more important your job is, the less you earn. It, that's that's the basic rule of our current economy. So yeah. if you are a teacher, if you are a nurse, if you're a garbage collector, you go on strike and society is in trouble, in big big trouble. And you earn very little money. It's David Graeber once said this, the anthropologist. It's almost as if the people at the top are so angry that you get to do the meaningful work is that they're like, no, you shouldn't also ask. Now you shouldn't also ask for a lot of money, right? That's just unfair. You already get to have the meaningful work and now you also want, you know, to have, have, a, have a living wage. That's unfair, you know, we need to be com- compensated for our bullshit jobs <laughs> because, you know, we live a meaningless existence. So please, at least give us the money. Uh, yeah, that, that's the economy we live in. But can I ask the two of you something? Yeah. I mean, you both live in Europe. Frederick, you're in a Nordic country. So from the outside, those of us who live in West, West, uh, Western North America, I should say, we look at Europe and we assume that you pay more taxes generally than we do, that you have more equal and fairer societies. But both of you in your work tell a very different story. So is it is it true? Is it the same as in North America that you're like, you know, the people who run your cities, for example, are making shit wages? The, and I, I would say that it is the same. I mean, the, the scales are the same. Of course, mm. it's a teacher is probably surviving better in Sweden than in the US. Right. Uh, and probably the same in the Netherlands. But I mean, I know Amsterdam had a problem that the teachers can't, can't afford to live in Amsterdam. So the mm-hmm. schools have problems to recruit teachers. So the pattern is there. Right. And what we can see is that also our society is losing out. And the same stress that people feel in North America, that they feel here in Brazil or wherever we are in the planet. The same stress yeah. is also yeah. not coming into the to the middle class of, yeah. of uh, fairly well-functioning European countries. Mm. But I think it is true that American capitalism is more brutal than the European social democratic model. I mean, we have to, we have to acknowledge that. To take something like maternity leave that, you know, 
basically doesn't exist. There's no federal right to it, right, in the, in yeah. the U.S. Um, take something like health insurance in countries like Sweden and the Netherlands. Just if you have a Dutch passport, you're insured. Um, and um, in that respect, there are, there are substantial differences. In other respects, I wouldn't over overplay it, though. Mm. Um, so the Netherlands is uh, one of the main players uh, in the global system of tax avoidance. Actually, American companies stash a huge amount of money in Amsterdam. Uh, wow. we're, we're one of the biggest players there. Um, and if you go to places like the Rotterdam Labour, uh, the Haber, uh, you know, there are a lot of migrant workers who are treated really, really badly. So that's mm. like also a, a whole shadow economy right. of people who don't have the same rights as Dutch citizens. Then again, you know, I lived for a while in Los Angeles and I was... I was shocked by how many homeless people you see on the streets in a place like that. And people have gotten, seem to have gotten used to it. Like, like that's just a fact of life. And it's not, you know, just walking around for 10 minutes in a place like LA and you'll see more homeless people than, than in Amsterdam if you walk around for months. So that, that just shows you that this is not inevitable, right? There's, there's a policy that we call housing first, that's been applied in many, many places in the globe, and that just works. The problem with poor people is that they don't have enough money, so you you need to give them money. That's how you solve poverty. The problem with homeless people is that, oh, they don't have a home, so you give them a home. That's 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 the basic principle of how you solve these kind of issues. And yeah, that that really struck me while I was living in LA. That I, I saw many, you know, people my age who sort of come to believe that this is just what the world is like, that there will always be people on the streets. And that's just not the case. This is, again, a result of deliberate policy choices. And we can change that. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. I, I was out working this morning in Sao Paulo and, you know, in the mornings, thousands of people go into their offices and people, the sidewalks are full and... And it's a lot of people just doing their daily thing that they have to do to survive. And Mm. I think that's the beauty of many societies that the people are up there fighting and trying to survive and and to contribute to the society. And that also makes it kind of hard for people to find time to fight back, you know. So Mm -hmm. and and how do we how do we give people hope? You know, that, I mean, I'm trying to make films that inspire, but it's, of course, they, we don't reach at all as, as long as we would like to. But how do we, mm-hmm. because people feel small in the system, they feel that they don't really have a chance. And the only thing they can do is just to be up there every morning and try to do their best. Mm. So how do we, how do we turn this around? Mm. What do you think, Leilani? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think, Part of it is to show people that when you do push back, there are wins and that the wins are small and and incremental, but they are wins. And your films do that and Rutger, your books do that. So I, I think that's all part of it. We have, I know as an advocate, I have to feel like I've made a little 
traction somewhere. Otherwise, I do start to feel hopeless. I admit that. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we're in a situation right now with this horrible war going on in, in on Gaza, um, where I think a lot of people are feeling very hopeless, not just about Gaza, but look at our governments and their timidity, their lack of courage in the face of potential genocide. And people are feeling, re- from what I can tell just from social media and stuff, people are feeling like, wait a second, At the same time, I think people are seeing, wait, there's a lot of us who actually feel the same way. And I think people take some strength in numbers, right? Like, wait, I'm in, I'm in a new community. There's all these people who think the world is unjust, that we have to push for change. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know. So much of what I do is igniting conversation, trying to just ignite conversation, to make it acceptable, to say the kinds of things that, that Frederick, you say in your film and Rutger, you say in your books, right? It's, mm-hmm. it, a lot of people don't feel that it's acceptable to say those things and feel those things and then act on them. So narrative building sounds boring, but it is kind of what I think is necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely an essential ingredient. You know, there's this quote from Margaret Mead that I've always loved. People will know it, you know. it. Uh, we should never underestimate a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens to change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. And I've always thought that it was a pretty brutal quote, especially the second <laughs> sentence. It's the only thing that ever has. So she basically says that the vast majority of people don't change the world. It's up to the small groups of thoughtful, committed citizens who are, you know, almost like cults sometimes, like fanatical cults who really believe in something and want to fight for it and sacrifice for it. Um, and that's also the pattern that I see in history. So I, I recently spent about a year studying the British abolitionist movement. And what's really fascinating here is that these abolitionists, they, they work in an environment in the year 1800 where around three quarters of the world population is enslaved or a serve. So like freedom is really the exception back then. That's the that, that's also something I, I sometimes point out, you know, if people are really depressed about the state of the world right now, it's like, well, study history. It used to be much worse. <laughs> and it was really a small group of activists, of entrepreneurs, of lawyers actually as well, who came together and who founded the British Society for the Abolition of the Slave Trade. And even though in the Netherlands there was pretty much no abolitionist movement and the people who were against slavery managed to achieve almost nothing, in France there were a couple of writers and intellectuals arguing against the slave trade. But yeah, I mean, (laughs) awareness is not enough and they didn't know how to actually build a movement. In Spain and Portugal there was pretty much nothing. But in Britain what happened was that it was basically the first big modern social movement that the world has ever seen with the first big massive boycott, for example, when thousands, well, I should say hundreds of thousands of British people started boycotting sugar from the colonies, for example. And this grew into a massive thing. It took 50 years until 1834 before slavery was finally abolished. But because Britain was so powerful, it managed then to pressure other countries like the Netherlands, for example, to also abolish uh, the slave trade and later uh, slavery itself. What's inspiring here, I think, is to see that it started with such a small group, such a small group. Initially, they could all fit in one room, but that's really where it started. 
Were they the richest in society? No, they weren't. Obviously not. Were they the most powerful in society? Obviously not. But they did have an incredibly powerful idea. And they had a strategy, right? And they had um, many different people who could play different roles. They had the lawyers. They had the activists. They had the entrepreneurs. They had the financiers. They had the philanthropists, etc., etc. So here I think we can learn from history and, and just see what it takes to change things. And also to realize that we are just a small part of something that is much bigger, right? Sometimes, you know, when you really think it's all about you as an individual, you think, oh, it's hopeless. What can I do? Well, you're just one individual in something that is a much bigger story. Mm. What gives me hope right now is when I see movements like Oxfam, for example, mm. who are operating in like in 80 countries, they are so clear in their language. In you know, They're producing amazing facts mm -hmm. that we can use in our conversations, which I think is very important. They're, it's very well-researched, very, very strong messages. And they are operating in like in 80 countries around the world. So I mean, they're, it's, they're, it's, so they are, they're, it's a global movement it's not the radical left. Let's let's put it like that. You know, so there is mm. there is in some way there is a, a global global movement that are very close to the values that both of you represent in many ways, and I think that's absolutely that, that's really hopeful. And I think it's and it's not really uh, when I whatever shouting or burning down uh, churches. You know, it's like it's it's uh, mm. it's kind of civil and balanced. And they also, in some way, I mean, um, of some reason, they also has a place in your favorite place, Davos. They are there every year and they, they, they have their inequality report um, released. Of some reasons, the billionaires like to have them around. I don't, I don't really get, yeah, I don't yeah, really yeah, get yeah, it. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I would prefer it if, if Davos uh, stays in existence as well, because at least then we have something to bash. Right. <laughs> That's important to keep in mind. These people really want to be liked, right? They want to be seen as do-gooders. And in that respect, they're vulnerable to us. I, I mean, I, I think they expose themselves at Davos, which is the beauty of it. Because if you're on the outside, which most of humanity is, and you're looking in as they fly their private jets into Davos only to talk about how they're saving the planet through all their ESG, you know, climate policies. I mean, mm -hmm. they just expose their own hypocrisy so brilliantly at Davos. So we do need it. I agree. In terms of hope, Frederick, I, given that you're in Sao Paulo, I shall tell you of a little experience I had just recently. I was in Brazil. I was in Brasilia. Uh, Lula's government... In particular, their Ministry of Human Rights, and I hope every listener heard that. In Brazil, they have a Ministry of Human Rights. Not very many governments do. Chile has one, too. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Latin America is good on that uh, front, uh, uh, at least in creating the ministries, and we'll leave it there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, he was launching, um, Lula's government and the Ministry of Human Rights were launching a housing first national project, Rutger just talked about Housing First and the idea that 
people who are homeless, what they really need is housing, and then you build in supports and any other thing that they need to make a, a go of, of life. And what was so inspiring was there were five, I think, social movements of homeless people in these meetings with all of these government officials, and they kind of totally took over the meetings. It was amazing. I mean, they were lying on the floor, and, like, these are people who are living homelessness, right? So they're mm-hmm. not going to play by the government rules. So they were just being themselves, so articulate, very clear demands, knew exactly what they wanted, knew how to get there. What was so impressive, besides the, them as social movements, was... The government officials who were listening, who were respectful, who understood that change comes from the ground up, which is what we're talking about, right? This, mm. the Margaret Mead quote, it's change comes from, from people who are organizing. It doesn't come from governments. Governments, their role is to listen, to execute, to implement, right? And they really had that sense there. I'm not, I'm not going to say that the government of Brazil is going to do this amazing Housing First program and everything's going to go the way the homeless social movements want. But they were certainly attentive and listening. And I've just found that impressive um, and, and made me think, okay... In North America, we are not there. We are definitely not there. But what is, what is also interesting here in Brazil right now is the indigenous people's movements that are for in sure. the forefront for, you know, saving our planet in some ways because they are also they're also now at the COP. They were at the COP. Uh, the, I mean, the, the message from the native people around the world it's it's very strong. And their voices are much stronger. And this is something you see also in Canada. You can't even have a public meeting in Canada without the native people taking the stage. So there mm. is this is all also something that is really hopeful. And I think yeah. in my film we reflect that also with the, the feminist movements are, are are speaking out. So I think there is there is a change happening. And and for me, I want to see that as hopeful. <laughs> Yeah, oh absolutely. Yeah, but you can you can see these kind of things when you zoom out far enough. I mean, just watch a romantic comedy from the 90s and you'll be utterly shocked by how incredibly sexist it is. And I mean, <laughs> I watched that back then. <laughs> Me <Didn't>, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess didn't really see the issue back then. Uh or I mean, maybe I was too young, by the way, for romantic comedies in the 90s. I, I was born in 88. But anyway, oh my God, that, that's, you, can, you can really see that if you watch these older older, older movies. Uh, just how much the zeitgeist has shifted and how people's opinions have changed. You, can, you don't see those kind of things on a day-to-day or even a year-to-year basis. But look at it from a decade-to-decade basis. And then it's like, holy shit, a lot has changed. So all this change happening within our minds and within our within our hearts but still mm. we have this kind of extremely extreme economical system which is not respecting the planet is not respecting uh, human rights so when will this balance up how will it <laughs> how will this happen yeah i, I think we'll have solved everything in 2025 yeah, no, just yeah I, was th- I was thinking the same. <laughs> yeah, 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 pretty yeah. much. Yeah, yeah, with yeah. a bow, tied up with a bow. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, so there's obviously the famous Martha Luther King quote about the arc of universe that bends towards 
justice. And uh, to be honest, I've, I've never really believed in that. There's no purpose in history. There's no arc of the moral universe. There's just us. And again, to be really honest, um, things can go downhill. Yeah. Uh, and the 21st century could become an utter catastrophe. And just think about, you know, the risks of some new technologies such as artificial intelligence, you know, which is now being developed by hyper-capitalistic companies in very brutal competition with one another, racing to develop the most powerful computer this world has ever seen. Well, we've, we've seen what happened last time around when tech companies did this. You know, we've now got a, a TikTok generation and, and we've seen the, the, the wreckage of, of that social media has, has caused. And this is happening again, but only with a much more powerful technology. So artificial intelligence is so much more powerful than what social media ever was and ever will be. So yeah, I think we have to be realistic here that we are living in the most dangerous century in all of human existence. Yeah, and so, so, sorry, <laughs> maybe this is not optimistic enough. This really could be our final century. I, I honestly believe that. Uh, we, we do face some ex existential risks and climate change is just one of them. On the other hand, we also live in the most hopeful century of all of human existence. So really, people shouldn't have any fantasies about the world of two or three centuries ago. We weren't living these happy lives, you know, on, on our farms, you know. There's nothing to be nostalgic about. The past was incredibly racist, patriarchal, uh, even more unequal than, than the societies we have today. Around 1800, half of all children died before they were five. Half. And people love their kids back then. So <laughs> in many respects, we have made a lot of progress. It's just that, yeah, there's a lot of st at stake in this century and in this time we're living right now. Um, so again, this is a reason to be angry, to be hopeful, and not to be cynical or lazy. The thing with both cynicism and optimism, they both make you lazy. Like the, cynic, uh, the, cyn the cynicist says, oh, it doesn't matter anyway. It's pointless. And the optimist says, oh, don't worry, everything will turn out to be fine. And they're they're both incorrect. So I'm happy to be with both of you uh, uh, because you're inspirational people who actually are not lazy. Uh, I, I know that, but because I'm trying to book meetings with both of you, and that's not that easy. <laughs> <laughs> you you work a lot, and you do you make a hell of a difference, both of you. Rutger, you are working on something new. Can you do you, do you want to open a little bit to talk about that? Yeah, sure. So the new book is going to be called Moral Ambition, and it's about a simple idea. What if we combine the idealism of an Extinction Rebellion activist with the ambition of a Silicon Valley startup founder, and then maybe also add the critical mindset of a scientist, and perhaps also the humility of a monk? If we combine those four things, what, what do we get? And I, th I, I call that moral ambition the desire to stand on the right side of history and to make an actual difference. So I've been in the business of raising awareness now for 10 years. And awareness is important, but there's also something that psychologists call the awareness behavior gap, right? There are a lot of things we know about, but we don't really do anything. And there's sometimes this tendency on the left to say, yeah, but it's all about systemic change. So it's not really about individuals. So don't shame me, you know, don't push me to do anything I don't want. Uh, let's have another big abstract discussion about <laughs> how the economy should change and systemic change and blah, That's blah, blah. so boring. And to be honest, I, I got a little bit fed up with that. Yeah. 
I am just such a big fan of people who actually do stuff, of people who are builders of movements, of institutions, of organizations, who fight for legislation, who change laws. You know, Emily Pankhurst said this at the beginning of the 21st century, you know, in a famous speech from the docks where she said to her fellow suffragettes, we're not here as lawbreakers, we're here as lawmakers. That's got to be our legacy, is that we make an actual su substantial difference. It's not enough to be right. It's not enough to stand on the right side of history. You got to win, right? Winning is a moral duty. So... Yeah, with this book, I'm also co-founding an organization called the School for Moral Ambition, where we, well, our idea is basically to get a lot of people out of their bullshit jobs and say, hey, we see that you're pretty talented. We know you're pretty depressed about your current job and that you're looking for, you know, meaning in your life and you actually want to contribute something that's useful. Why don't we help you? You know, you can join one of our fellowships and we'll help you transition from a bullshit job to, to a job that's actually impactful. So, um that's actually one of my dreams. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit inspired by the, the the big evil Peter Thiel, you know, who's like the Silicon Valley evil genius who has this Thiel fund. Uh, he, he pays people to drop out of college. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we have the anti-bullshit jobs fund where, you know, we just bring together a couple of philanthropists who don't know what to do with their money and we start funding the sabbaticals of people who are currently stuck in bullshit jobs. We need to buy out that talent. Free the corporate people, right? Free them from their corporate prisons. That's uh, that's one of the ideas that I'm currently excited about. I like that. Uh, <laughs> I like that. I, I, you don't know how many calls I get or emails uh, or direct messages from young people in maybe not straight corporate jobs, but in corporate law jobs because I'm yeah, a lawyer. Yeah. People know I'm a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And they're calling me, reaching out to me to say, it's often a lot of uh, younger women, racialized women in particular, saying, how do I get out of this? How do mm -hmm. I do something more like what you're, what you're doing? But let, let us also not glorify um, what it means to have a job where you're doing something more more meaningful my job is definitely not a bullshit job mm -hmm. i spend all my time trying to make new laws get governments to adopt new laws yeah. um etc and let's not glorify it either it's underpaid insecure and i have to tell these young people this right that that what they will give up often because of the way things are structured right now is they'll give up a good health care benefit package they'll give up a high salary they'll give up right like there there are drawbacks um yes not yes, all of yes. us can work like yes. i have my own organization so we do our own fundraising and you know because the ideas that we're pushing are so against the grain and against the main and foundations themselves are investing in the very thing i'm trying to get them to divest from yes it's yes. it ends up so we should be plain about that that being said i love your idea and when you worked <laughs> no, for the no. un leilani as a special rapporteur it was unpaid it was an unpaid yeah. job as a special rapporteur unpaid job for how many years yeah. six years six years highest highest human rights job you can have the most impactful i mean i will probably never have a position where i can make as much impact as i did then yeah and it was an unpaid yeah. job yeah. yeah and look i think that also needs to change definitely so activism is work and it yeah. needs to be well Well, that's what you're suggesting right? with your model yes. right yeah yes exactly um so and i think there are a lot of opportunities here um yeah. actually i was recently talking to a founder of 
an organization called Hero, just founded here recently in the Netherlands, and they're crowdfunding the basic incomes of climate activists. Um, That's interesting. There are also a lot of rich and philanthropists out there who who are open to this. Also a lot of next gens, you know, people who grew up in wealthy families, just like Charles Garland, you know, the guy that I mentioned earlier, you know, suddenly they find themselves in a world like, oh, I am rich. I am actually on the, on the bad side, <laughs> you know? Uh, and they read the news as well. You know, they're quite often, they're pretty progressive or even left wing. They just don't really know what to do with it. So I think we can help them yeah. and then come up with proposals. Uh, in that sense, I think leftists and progressives have to be pragmatic as well and not to say, oh, like, I want to be pure, right? I don't want to work with the system or anything like that. If you look at the successful activists throughout history, they've always used whatever tools they were, they were at hand, right? And they've used many, many different kind of strategies as long as it worked, as long as it helped them to win. And that, that's, for me, is really essential. It's its all about winning. Yeah. Let's win. For me too. Let's win. Let's win. <laughs> My friends, we are, we've been talking for for quite a long time, and but it's, we're, yeah, it's we're in Christmas time. So mm. what are, what are you, what is your dream Christmas gift? Rutger. <laughs> <laughs> dream Christmas gift? Yeah, what do you really want uh, for Christmas? I mean, John Lennon asked for peace. I mean, you can ask for many things. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. What um, do I want for Christmas? Like a big wish for the world? I think that's what he's getting at. I, I don't know. Or, I mean, I'm just trying to be funny. See if you... It's like <laughs> Okay, here's my thing. A ceasefire, end the occupation, free Palestine. Okay, there. That's my wish. That's a good gift. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> I'm, I'm soon going to ask you for the, the wish for the, the next year. And that's, the, you know, this was only Christmas <laughs> now. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, okay. That was just Christmas. Oh, and then there's like the new year. Right. Okay. Uh, a portable microphone for my iPhone. How about that for the new year? That's good. That's good. I mean, my, my big dream is to get more people to see that they are not lonely and that more people are engaging in a conversation that is like that we can see that change is possible, to, that we can find a way to break that into people or break out from people, that, that uh, we are not as hopeless that you can, you can imagine. But it, it's, mm. it's very hard to send out that message when so evil things are happening right now on our planet. And, and it's, I can understand that it's, it's tough, but I... And I'm, I'm, and I'm really happy to work with both of you because you are people who give me hope. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's what I wish for next year to work with more cool people that, that also make <laughs> me, ah, that's good. make me, me make me stronger. I think that's important. Yeah, yeah. And I wish a lot of people are going to watch your film, uh, Frederick, because yeah. it will make them more hopeful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good one too. I like that. <laughs> and listen to the podcast. Maybe more people could listen to the podcast. Yeah, that's the next. You could have a gift that if there is some really, if you know a philanthropist who has too much money, you could actually send mm. some money to this podcast because we don't really have right. any money to fund it, uh, <laughs> which is a bit complicated. That's why we're not so regular anymore because we we don't really have time to plan it. Anyway. We're fine, and and I'm really happy to to have you in my life, uh, Rutko and Leilani. 
Thank you for being on Pushback Talks and thank you for pushing back. Likewise. <laughs> with your work. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks, Frederick. Thanks, Leilani. Yeah, thanks, Frederick. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Rooker. Yeah, take care. Ciao, ciao. Bye. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To support the podcast, become a patron by going to patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Follow us on social media at make underscore the shift and push underscore the film. Or check out our websites, maketheshift.org, pushthefilm.com, or breakingsocialfilm.com. <laughs>